Uh, some people are mysterious, and um, you, you're never quite sure what's happening for them. You're not sure what's going on in their minds. You're not sure what's going on in their hearts. You're not even sure necessarily what's going on in their lives. Uh, they're, they're kind of a closed book. They keep themselves to themselves, and um, you just, you know, you, you get what you get, and that's, that's kind of all. Some people are mysterious, and then there's the Apostle Paul. Listen how the uh, Apostle writes later on in this second letter uh, to the church in Corinth. He says, um, We've spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as the children, open wide your hearts also. Uh, or again in chapter 7, verse 2, um, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I often boast about you. I've great pride in you. I'm filled with consolation. I'm overjoyed in all my affliction. Paul has an absolute heart-on-his-sleeve approach to relating to these people. And it had gotten him into a lot of trouble. Uh, he's made uh, plans and uh, issued promises on the basis of this affection that he had for this church in Corinth. And then he subsequently changed his plans and um, altered his promises on the very same basis of affection and care and and his very openness this this very way that the apostle has of being so kind of out there with himself um kind of lacks dignity a little bit he, he's he doesn't have a great deal of kind of gravitas presence and and that actually is especially the case in comparison to the, the new boys in town in Corinth, the so-called super apostles, who were unbelievably impressive. They were highly credentialed. And their impressive veneer made Paul's what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of approach look not terribly far from pathetic. Uh, and that uh, represented a real problem. Uh, because the issue of, uh, that was associated with these super apostles was not just turf consciousness. It wasn't that Paul sort of resented the idea that um, people were coming in and, and taking his converts away as though his ego was at stake or something like that. No, no it's, not, it's not turf consciousness. It's not egotism. It's because these super apostles had an agenda. These new leaders in the church in Corinth were making a theological claim to go with their personal credentials. And the claim was that Paul had dudded the Corinthians and actually, for that matter, dudded all uh, the churches that he'd planted. And the reason that Paul had dudded them, these super apostles uh, were saying, was that um, if you really want to be connected to God, then you have to be obedient to the law of Moses as well as receive the grace of Christ. Very simple comment. Uh, actually, I could, I could produce a whole lot of Bible verses from the Old Testament that would support that claim, in fact. It was exactly the same claim that was made against Jesus, in fact. That the reason that he was rejected as, a, as a, uh, the Messiah was because 
he wasn't quite the Messiah that people looked for from the Old Testament. And for Paul, this is not just a fine point of theology, like how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. What the the super apostles were doing was nothing short of catastrophic. It was a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, It was something that would actually lead you to hell. And so Paul has to pastor his people. He has to protect them from these wolves in sheep's clothing. And as he does so, he teaches us at profound depth about real change. Uh, the, the verse, uh, verse 18 at the end of the chapter is really what it's all driving towards. And it talks about um, what we read there is transformation, or the, or the Greek word actually is metamorphosis. What's on offer in this passage is, is that thing that I think we all long for in our hearts. It's the change, the transformation, the, the, the metamorphosis of those ugly bits in our lives, in our souls. And for them to become something beautiful. And for the Apostle Paul, it all hinges on the idea of glory. Now, there are three things that lie in the background about uh, glory. The first is its definition. Um, the, the idea of glory is, is just simply heaviness. Uh, at one level, uh, the, the Hebrew word is kavod. Uh, the Greek word is doxa. And it just means heaviness, weightiness. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I've become a little less glorious over the last few months, although my decline in glory has stalled somewhat recently and I've been increasing in glory, actually, much to my dis, uh, dismay uh, once again. Um, it's about the substance of a person. Um, the, the opposite of glory is shame. And, and the idea of shame is of lightness, just being a kind of lightweight, of being feeble or useless. And the inside of Scripture, this is very, very significant, the inside of Scripture is that every person, every one of us here tonight, every person that you meet at work tomorrow, every person you pass in the street, in the shopping centre, on the public transport, every person, no matter their background or race or culture, every person attaches themselves to something that they regard as glorious. That's, that's why glory matters, you see. We are made to be connected. Uh, in the Bible, this attachment to what we regard as glorious is called worship, uh, which sounds like a kind of uh, religious ceremony kind of thing, but this attachment to glory is far deeper than what happens on a Sunday. Um, it's about how every one of us sinks our hearts into something or someone. Uh, Whether that's a career or a spouse uh, or wealth or a house or family or even just the sense that I'm a good person, even just that sense that I get how things are. I understand when most people, of course, are just lemmings. Whatever it is, We sink our hearts into that which we think is glorious. Which leads to the third thing about glory. You see, you become like what you worship. The whole idea is that its glory 
rubs off onto you. That's why you do it in the first place. You become like what you worship. Uh, Psalm 115 uh, puts it like this, pouring scorn on the idols of the pagan nations around Israel. Uh, Quote, uh, those who make them are like them. And so are all who trust in them. You become like that which you take to your heart as your glory. And the Apostle has one of the boldest things to say here, and I think in all the Bible. This is just one of the most astonishing verses, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, that you'll ever read. Because what he's saying is that through the ministry that he does, this ministry, as he puts it, of the new covenant, we can experience the direct presence of the glory of God. We can take the glory of God to our hearts in an unmediated, direct way and so be transformed by that into His image. Which, after all, is what you were made for in the first place. You can be all that you were designed and created to be. That's what Paul's talking about here tonight. And we're going to break it into three pieces. Uh, Firstly, uh, you see, crushing glory. And then, second, transforming glory. And then, looking at the difference. Why, Why one rather than the other? Crushing glory, transforming glory, and then why the difference? Well, firstly, then, crushing glory. And uh, to understand this, you need, you need to send your memory back. And this worked really well at the 10 o'clock service. And I just don't know whether it's going to fly quite here tonight because of the youthfulness of the congregation and your relative lack of kind of awareness of pop culture, right? So I'm just going to try this. And, but we do have a few gray hairs in the congregation too. And so I'm, I'm pleased to see that. Ready? One of the great movies of the 1980s. Okay? Some of you were even born then. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Has anyone seen this movie? Has anyone not seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I'm so depressed. You, it, Harrison Ford is in this movie. It was one of the movies that meant that for a little while, Harrison Ford was in five of the all-time top ten grossing movies in history. That's not a bad, you know, Harrison Ford, the guy's got it. It looks a lot like me, I think. Anyway, um... um Raiders of the Lost Ark is about an ark, the ark of the covenant of God. And in the covenant, in the ark of the covenant, um, it, which is just like this big chest, this big heavy box, this wooden chest, um, are laid the, the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments of God. There's also some uh, manna, this bread, this special bread that was used to feed Israel in the wilderness. Uh, these are artifacts, um, aspects, elements that constitute a kind of um, reminder of the glory of God. And uh, the, the Nazis, uh, the bad guys in the movie, and they want to kind of utilize the power of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they steal it, they find it and steal it through all their archaeology and Harrison Ford and all that kind of stuff. And they finally get it off to this island and Harrison Ford has spent 30 days on, a, on the edge of a side of a submarine, which he didn't, he didn't trouble him because he's top, you know, super guy. And um, eventually they get to the island and they're all gathered around and they have this sort of moment and they open the Ark of the Covenant. They open the box. And the glory of God is seen. 
And, and you remember, there's this sort of great picture where the, the glory comes out. And the really bad Nazi, the one you really hate, sees it and, he, and he's in rapture because he's seeing the glory of God. And then, then the glory of God turns. It's like a skull on crossbones appears, just to let you know that it's going to go bad. And the glory of God comes down and... And it shreds, blows them all up. And especially the, bad, the really bad guy, his head, whole head explodes and that's really good. Uh, and all of the bad guys die. But Harrison Ford lives because he knows as an archaeologist that you can't look at the glory of God. So he tells his, uh, the girl next to him, because he always gets the woman, and himself, they close their eyes, they don't see the glory of God, they live, all the ashes of everyone all gets wrapped up, put back in the box, and they win. It's, a good, it's an American movie, of course I win. Now, Steven Spielberg, who, wrote, uh, who did that movie, of course, didn't, he, he didn't make it up. He didn't make that stuff up. He got it straight out of the Old Testament. That's all, I mean, not the Nazi bit, but the whole idea of the, the, the glory of God, that's the real deal. It's part of the history of Israel. Right back at the start of Israel's life as the people of God, uh, they've come out of the land of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And they experience at a distance... The glory of God. They're at the bottom of the mountain and on the top of the mountain, as Moses goes up and meets with God, there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes and crashings and that's the glory of God. And, and um, the people say, we're going to be God's people and he will be our God. He's going to be our glory. We're going to sink our hearts into him and, and live for his praise. But Moses is gone a while. In fact, he's gone seven weeks. And they panic. They can't even handle seven weeks. They have a low ambiguity tolerance. And so they, they make for themselves another God. They, make for them, they sink their hearts into another thing. They take off all their gold rings and, and, and stuff and jewelry and melt it and make a... a, a a calf, a golden calf, and bow down and worship it. They, they break the very first of the Ten Commandments uh, that God gives them in an act which is just like kind of Adam and Eve all over again. And Moses uh, comes down the mountain and he smashes the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and the glory of God appears amongst the Israelite people. And it kills 3,000 of them. Because that's what happens when you encounter the glory of God. And it's only because Moses prays on their behalf that it doesn't wipe out the, the whole people. Uh, Moses um, goes up a second time to the mountain of God. As he persuades God, it's almost this sort of bargaining that he does. Come on, give us another chance. And, and God's, all right, the Lord says, okay. So he goes up the mountain, he gets another pair of stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and this time he comes down and he's got the most severe sunburn on his face that you've ever seen. His face is actually radiant, beaming with the glory of God. And, and when he comes down the mountain uh, into the, the Israelite camp, they're, they're terrified. Why are they terrified? They're terrified because they know what happens when the glory of God comes into their midst. It means only one thing. It means their death. And so Moses does this really interesting thing. He, 
he puts a veil over his face. Uh, every now and again, he would go out into the what's called tent of meeting, the place where God was to be met with and communicated with and God's will would be delivered to Moses. And when he was in with the Lord, he would take the veil off. He didn't need to be veiled. But when, when he'd come out again, the glory of God would be on his face again. And so he would put the veil back on in order to come and speak to the Israelites. And with that history, we can understand what the Apostle is saying in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. He's saying three things. Um, you see, on the one hand, he says uh, the, the old covenant was, was glorious. Uh, it's, it's really important. Um, the Apostle Paul is not anti-Semitic. You know what that means? It's not, he's not saying that somehow Jews or the Jewish religion or something like that was, is bad. No, he's saying that it's been, um, if you like, it was good in its time and place. It's now been superseded, yes, but not it's bad. No, no, it came in glory. Absolutely it came in glory. That's pretty clear. But second, that glory resulted in crushing death to the people of God. And, and you can see that in the narrative of Exodus uh, chapters 30 and 31 and 32 and so on. It brought death and condemnation. It was just temporary. It brought death immediately to those 3,000 that, that I've said. And um, it actually brought death to, in the hardness of heart to the whole nation as um, the kind of history of God's old covenant people is one golden calf incident after another. Until in 721 BC and then uh, finally in 587 BC, the, the nation is wiped out taken into exile from which they never really return. And it's never like those days again. And you can see the point that the, the Apostle's making. It's if, if the, the, the ministry, the, the, the kind of gifts that Moses gave to God's people turn out to be a ministry of death and condemnation, and yet it came in glory, how much more, uh, Paul says, how much more is a ministry that's not temporary for a specific ethnic group for a specific time, but for all people for all time? How much more glorious is a ministry that brings vindication, righteousness, not condemnation, that brings the Holy Spirit of God, not death? And of course, you can hear what the Apostle's doing here, the, the implication of behind, that's behind all that. And guess who's doing that ministry? Me. Me, your Apostle, Paul says. Me, who, who you're so quick to abandon for the benefit of these super Apostles who are going to take you back to that old covenant ministry, which was a ministry of death and condemnation. My ministry, the one that you so quickly despise, says Paul to the Corinthians, and actually a ministry which many contemporary Australians despise, the Apostle Paul. And what, what he's saying is that you might not see it, you might not understand it, but what's happening in and through the ministry of the New Covenant is absolutely more spectacular than all the pyrotechnics of Mount Sinai. 
It's much more glorious. It renders that just a backstreet sideshow. How can that be? If you ever, I don't know if you've ever sort of thought about it. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been at Mount Sinai? I mean, actually there. When God shows up like that. You go, wow, gee, I, I, that, I would be, I'd be boots and all in. I, no holding back then, that's for sure. I'm, I'm, and, and Paul says, you know what? You've got more than they did. You've got more than they did. How can that possibly be? Point two, transforming glory. See, it's all in verse 18, which is, as I said, really the climax of this passage. Uh, we're going to just read it slowly and then break it down. Um, and all of us, the apostle says, you can hear the, the echoes, right? With unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord the Spirit Uh, we'll come back to the uh, unveiled faces in just a moment but for now um, notice the point that the Apostle is making Here's what's so fantastic about the New Covenant. It's a ministry of transformation, of metamorphosis, where you can see the glory of the Lord directly. When you take to your heart God in His glory, that the weight and substance and joy of your life is the living and true Lord, then you're metamorphosed. Your ugly, grubby bits are changed and transformed. And there are two dimensions uh, to that that we need to just notice. The first is where. Where do we see this glory of the Lord? And Paul's answer is that we see it, notice what he says, as though reflected in a mirror. In other words, the idea here is that you, you look at something and you see something else in that something. You, you see it in a mirror. There's the thing that you're looking at ultimately, the, the, the ultimate sort of object of your gaze, but the way you see it is reflected in this mirror. We see the glory, the excellence, the weightiness, the substance of God reflected. And notice that this is a very deeply corporate thing, the Apostle saying. It's all of us with unveiled faces are transformed into the same image all of us. And what I think the Apostle's getting at is that it's in each other. It's in each other. As we live together in the fellowship of the body of Christ, reflecting the glory of the Lord to each other. That's how we see who He is. That's how we experience his transformation in our lives bit by bit degree by degree Uh, which leads to the second question then uh, what what is the glory that we see and the answer to this actually is in the next paragraph but there's enough in this you know two paragraphs that we're going to look at that we didn't go to the third one Uh, chapter 4 verse 6 where paul speaks of how the god of all creation has done uh, such an incredible thing he's got to compare it to the only comparable kind of thing which is an act of creation like the first creation. It's an act of new creation. 
that that's what God does in our lives. Uh, he shines in our hearts. You remember what, what was the first act of creation God did? He said, let there be light. There was light. And God has shone in our hearts to give us what the Apostle says is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where God's glory is to be seen. The blood-streaked, sin-bearing, sacrificing love of Jesus Christ broken for us. You want to know what divine glory is? It's weakness and humility and utter vulnerability and totally giving of himself for others. That's where Paul says glory is to be seen. That's what glory really is. That's real substance. And Paul's point is that when you see that lived out in a community, when we reflect that to one another, when we embody that kind of weakness, vulnerability, love, sacrifice, when you can see in and through all my angles and prickles and bumps and lumps something of the glorious Christ, then that is a transforming experience. Which opens up our final point, which is why. Why? Why, when Israel encounters the glory of God, does it kill them? But when we encounter the glory of God, does it enliven and transform us? And the explanation Paul gives in verses 12 to 16 uh, is that it's to do with hearts and minds. It's about our hearts and minds. That The problem is not with the old covenant itself, the old covenant, Paul is at pains to stress, is glorious. In fact, in a sense, it's too glorious, it's too weighty, it's too heavy. That was its problem. It crushed. Now, the problem lies in hearts and minds. In verse 14, he says simply of the Sinai generation that their minds were hardened. That's why they couldn't gaze on Moses' face. That's why he had to put a veil on his face. And Paul takes that image and he kind of plays with it a little bit. Um, he says, even to this day, when Jews across the Mediterranean hear the old covenant read, the law of Moses, a veil is still there, except now the veil's on their hearts. Literally, they can't see the true glory of God as they reject the gospel because of their hardness of heart. What makes a heart hard? And the answer is that when you put your heart into anything other than Jesus Christ, when you make anything your glory other than Jesus Christ, even your religious performance and moral excellence, then the inevitable consequence of that can only be either insufferable pride or crushing fear. Either you live up to your glory, you achieve your goals, your family, your wealth, your career, your moral performance, at least on the outside, managing to avoid all the obvious failures. 
And if you manage to succeed, if you can tick off the boxes and say, yes, yeah, look at me. I mean, you never verbalize it, of course. You just wrap it around your heart like that. You will, you will look down on other people. And you'll know yourself to be better. And it will leak out. It will leak out. On the other hand, if you fail, if you set yourself standard, you make something your glory and you fail to live up with it and you try and you try and you try and you make excuses and you tell yourself it'll be tomorrow or next year or next decade or I'm finally going to make it. And at the end of the day, you realize that they're just excuses. Then your glory will crush you. It will kill you spiritually every bit as much as the glory of God killed those 3,000 Israelites. But do you see the difference when Jesus Christ is your glory? When you know the glory of God to be seen in the face of Jesus Christ with the blood from the crown spiked into his skull streaking down his face. Because when that is your glory, when that's what you sink your heart into, it completely shreds your pride. It leaves you in absolutely no doubt as to any excellence you might be able to claim. Those are your sins that he's bearing. That is your condemnation that is crushing him. That is your debt that he is paying at the cost of his life. It is your hell that's coming down upon him. You've got to try and pretend anymore that you've made it? Come on. And yet at the same time, precisely because of that reality, it means that you need never fear anything again. Not ultimately. You, you, you need lack confidence never again. Because you have a certainty written in the pages of history in the blood-streaked face of Jesus Christ that the God of the universe through whom all things were created, the dying and rising Son of the living and true God, loves you utterly. And so you have a boldness, you see, an unshakable confidence in life, a courage, a strength of heart, a willingness of spirit, a poise, and a confidence in the face of anything that life can throw you. That's what a soft heart is, you see. Beautiful, gentle strength that comes from sinking your heart into the glory that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to where we started, actually. You see, in one sense, the whole point of this passage is for Paul to explain and defend uh, the way he goes about his business as an apostle of Jesus Christ with his heart on his sleeve. Right? It's not accidental that he's like this. He says, since we have such a hope, since we have a hope of the glory of God, we act, he says, with great boldness. Great boldness. Uh, the word means something like, um, openness, transparency. 
It's the opposite of, of, of sneakiness, of, of double-facedness, of saying one thing but thinking and meaning another thing. Now, later on, he describes it as living in the reality that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom of relationship, freedom of affection, genuine care. And the invitation of this passage is that when we relate to one another like that, with that kind of boldness, with that kind of freedom, when we have that sort of richness in our communal relationships, then something immensely powerful happens. We function for each other as mirrors of the glory of God. Do you see that? That's what the Christian community is. It's like it's a house of mirrors where we are constantly functioning for each other as reflectors of the glory of God. Reflecting grace and love and mercy to one another. And when that happens, there are moments of transformation again and again and again. Warm, soft hearts. Uh, as Paul puts it, um, unveiled faces. You see that? We get to be like Moses. With unveiled faces. Seeing God's glory reflected through each other. And it is a metamorphosing thing. Little grubby caterpillar bits become beautiful and clean and good. Well, let me, let me put this as a challenge if I can. Because it's, it's one thing to say we're, we're supposed to be mirrors of God's glory to each other, but, but I wonder whether we can kind of take it and, and begin to dig it into our souls and, and work it into our hearts by, by putting it like this. Um, is there some tarnish on your mirroring of the glory of God? I, I think it can be tarnished in two ways. On the one hand, you can be tarnished if you have a divided heart. Uh, that is, a heart which on the one hand is sunk into Jesus Christ to some degree, but on the other hand is sunk into something else. And that pride, or that fear, that destruction that any other glory will work in your life is kind of showing through. But on the other hand, you can be tarnished because you veil your heart. One way you can be tarnished is that you don't act with this kind of great boldness that the Apostle speaks of, this practice of openness and transparency. You don't wear your heart on your sleeve with anyone ever. You're guarded and closed with your time, with your affections, with your words. You whinge about people instead of talking directly to people. You constrain your commitments. You spread yourself sufficiently thinly to make sure that no one ever really gets to make a claim on you. And so hear the call of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ tonight. That all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in each other like a mirror.
can be transformed into that same image, the image of Jesus Christ, who's the image of God, one bit at a time, from one degree of glory to another. That's our calling. Amen.